Now celebrating our 23rd year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1204, with a release and air date of Saturday, March 26, 2022. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Welcome to This Week in Amateur Radio, your weekly amateur radio newscast. This Week in Amateur Radio is North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories making news as we come to air with edition number 1204. The other shoe has finally dropped as the FCC announces the date for the new amateur radio filing fees. We will have all the details. Russia and Belarus are suspended from membership in the CEPT. Denmark's Amateur Radio Society, the EDR, takes action against Russia and Belarus. Meanwhile, Russian astronauts arriving at the International Space Station arrive wearing the colors of the Ukraine. Shortwave radio is making a comeback during the Ukrainian war. Due to the Ukrainian conflict, Poland cancels the SPDX contest. In Russia, owning a shortwave radio is once again becoming a subversive activity. The largest amateur radio ham fest in Europe will welcome visitors from around the world this year. HARP, the high-frequency active rural research program, is back on the air this month. The state of Oregon has launched its first amateur radio satellite. And an amateur radio club in Kentucky is honoring the birthday of country western star Loretta Lynn with a special event station. We will tell you all about this and a lot more is all straight ahead in this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about Apple iOS vulnerabilities in a remote zero-click attack. Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, will try and answer the question, why do we communicate? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill examines the CB craze of the late 70s and the effect it had on backlogging the FCC and amateur radio. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, presents part four of his six-part series explaining how to get your club meeting or hamfest promoted on local broadcast radio by correctly composing and submitting a public service announcement. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service. This week in amateur radio takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in cloudy Albany, New York, I'm George W2XBS. And reporting from the newsroom in Half Moon, New York, I'm Terry Saunders, N1KIN. And reporting this week from the sleepy little town of Cortlandville, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson. W-A-2-H-O-Y. And reporting from our ham radio outpost here in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where the maple sap continues to flow copiously, 
and little yellow tulips are beginning to pop up through the mudflats. I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our Troy, New York News Bureau, where I'm happy to see this year a very healthy population of spring turkey, I'm Eric, KD2RJX. Leading off this week's news, and a lot of you have been waiting for this one. A public notice released by the Federal Communications Commission on March 23, 2022, in MD docket number 20-270, announced that new application fees for Wireless Telecommunications Bureau applications will become effective on April 19, 2022. The new fees, mandated by Congress, apply to applications for amateur radio licenses, including those associated with filing Form 605, the Amateur Operator Primary Station Licensee application. Effective April 19, 2022, a $35 fee will apply to applications for a new amateur radio license, modification, including upgrade and sequential call sign change, renewal, and vanity call signs. Anticipating the implementation of the fee in 2022, the ARRL Board of Directors at its July 2021 meeting approved the ARRL Youth Licensing Grant Program. Under the program, ARRL will cover a one-time $35 application fee for licensed candidates younger than 18 years old for tests administered under the auspices of the ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator. Qualified candidates also would pay a reduced exam session fee of $5 to the ARRL VEC. ARRL is finalizing details for administering the program. ARRL had filed comments in opposition to imposing a fee on amateur radio license applications. The FCC initially proposed a higher $50 fee. In a report and order released on December 29, 2020, the amount was reduced, the FCC agreeing with ARRL and other commenters that its proposed $50 fee for certain amateur radio applications was too high to account for the minimal staff involvement in these applications. ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, explained that all fees are per application. There will be no fee for administrative updates, such as change of mailing or email address. The fees will be the responsibility of the applicant, regardless of filing method, and must be paid within 10 calendar days of FCC's receipt of the application. For applications filed by a VEC, the period does not begin until the application is received by the Commission, a ULS file number assigned, and an email sent by the FCC directly to the applicant. VECs and volunteer examiner teams will not collect the $35 fee at license exam sessions. New and upgrade candidates at an exam session will continue to pay the $15 exam session fee to the ARRL VE team as usual and pay the new $35 application fee directly to the FCC by using the CORE's FRN registration system or CORE's login. When the FCC receives the examination information from the VEC, it will email a link with payment instructions to each successful candidate who then will have 10 calendar days from the date of the email to pay. After the fee is paid and the FCC has processed an application, examinees will receive a second email from the FCC with a link to their official license or explanation of other action. The link will be good for 30 days. SOMA also explained that applications that are processed and dismissed will not be entitled to a refund. This includes vanity call sign requests where the applicant does not receive the requested call sign. The FCC staff has suggested that applicants for vanity call signs should first ensure the call signs requested are available and eligible for their operator class and area, and then request as many call signs as the form allows to maximize their chances of receiving a call sign. Further information and instructions about the FCC application fee are available from the ARRL VEC at www.arrl.org forward slash FCC dash application dash fee. 
Details for the ARRL Youth Licensing Grant Program will be similarly posted there when it becomes available. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. On March 17th, the European Conference of Postal and Telecommunications, better known as the CEPT, announced the indefinite suspension of Belarus and the Russian Federation in a sweeping action that has an impact on amateur radio operators. Steve Richards, G4HPE, has more in this report filed through the Southgate News Service in the UK. The CEPT was formed in 1959 to coordinate European state communications and postal services. Part of its work includes harmonising the standard of amateur radio examinations and licences within Europe. There are 400,000 radio amateurs located in CEPT countries, including Ukraine, Russia and Belarus. The CEPT announcement said that based on a request from a number of CEPT members, the CEPT presidency carried out a written procedure in accordance with the CEPT arrangement on the proposal to suspend indefinitely and with immediate effect the memberships of the Russian Federation and Belarus. 34 responses were received to the CEPT assembly letter in support of the proposal and one abstention. Based on this, the CEPT Assembly has therefore decided to suspend indefinitely the memberships of the Russian Federation and Belarus. The suspension of the said CEPT members took effect as from midnight Central European time on the 18th of March 2022. Any future readmission to the CEPT would follow the usual rules established in the CEPT arrangement, notably the need for a two-thirds majority of members of the CEPT to endorse such a decision. The CEPT presidency requested the office to take all necessary measures in order to set in place these decisions. And there's more in the news section at cept.org. And in Poland, there has been an announcement from the SPDX Contest Committee, who said that after careful consideration, together with the Polish Amateur Radio Union, the PZK, and the SPDX Club, they've decided to cancel the 2022 SPDX Contest. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, Poland has accepted nearly 2 million refugees to date, as a direct result of Russian aggression towards their neighbouring country. This is an unprecedented event in Europe and has resulted in the greatest migration crisis in Europe since World War II. Polish people are deeply engaged in all forms of humanitarian assistance. Polish radio amateurs are giving shelter to Ukrainian refugees in their homes and offering their help and services in every way possible. Under these extraordinary circumstances, the SPDX contest committee felt it was most appropriate to cancel the SPDX contest this year. There's more at spdxcontest.pzk.org.pl. An agreement with the CEPT conference grants amateur radio privileges to qualifying hams traveling between signatory countries without the need to obtain additional permits or licenses. The CEPT was formed to foster 
the cooperation among its member nations with regard to postal and electronic communications. The Russian Federation joined CEPT in 1994. Belarus became a member in 2003. The CEPT Assembly also decided that any future readmission to the CEPT would follow the usual rules established in the CEPT agreement, notably the need for a two-thirds majority of members of the CEPT to endorse such a decision. Denmark's National Amateur Radio Society, the EDR, has joined others in banning radio amateurs in Russia and Belarus from participating in any EDF contest or ARDF event. A translation of the statement issued by the EDF reads, The Russian Federation's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th and the events that resulted from it have given rise to many thoughts also among radio amateurs around the world. How should we behave? Until this conflict, the amateur radio community has always tried to be apolitical and impartial in relation to conflicts around the world. It is clear that the Russian Federation and Belarus, with their military operation into a sovereign and democratic European Ukraine, have crossed a border for acceptable behavior. Therefore, like other European associations, the EDR cannot remain neutral. We must deal with the conflict without escalating it. The policy of the EDR is that we will follow the actions of the mainstream sports organizations with regard to all activities of a competitive nature, such as contests and fox hunting, organized by the Russian Federation and Belarus. Russian and Belarusian radio amateurs are therefore not currently eligible to participate in any event organized or sponsored by EDR. EDR's policy in commercial activities is that we will refrain from trade with the Russian Federation and Belarus until further notice. Since amateur radio is an individual hobby, and the individual radio amateur decides for himself how he wants to practice it, EDR will be neutral in relation to the attitude of individual EDR members. If some of our members want to participate in competition organized by Russian organizations or have contact with Russian radio amateurs, it is the individual member's sovereign choice. EDR members should also be aware of the situation of Ukrainian radio amateurs. They have been banned from broadcasting since February 24th in accordance with the exemption law passed by the Ukrainian parliament as a result of the invasion. In principle, any radio amateur currently broadcasting from Ukraine risks his life. If you are listening to a Ukrainian station, you should definitely not shout about it. Dissemination of call signals, locations, and frequencies, whether on a tape or in a cluster, should be avoided in any case. In the current situation, the best thing we can do is listen. We should not try to call Ukrainian radio amateurs. The EDR's calendar will not include contests and other events organized by associations domiciled in the Russian Federation or Belarus as long as the current situation exists. For EDR competitions, so far all logs received from stations in the Russian Federation or Belarus will be treated as check logs.
A U.S. astronaut will now be returning to Earth from the International Space Station after fears his Russian lift home might not materialize. Despite terrestrial tensions dividing the nations, U.S. astronaut Mark Vandehei, KG-5GNP, is preparing to return to Earth from the International Space Station this month with two cosmonauts on board a Russian Soyuz spacecraft. The scheduled landing in Kazakhstan on March 30th is being planned in cooperation with the Russian space agency Roscosmos. According to several news reports, the three crew members' return comes amid fiercely growing tensions between the two countries, tensions that have reportedly spilled over into the space program, particularly with the head of Russia's space agency, Dmitry Rogozin, being a longtime supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin. However, despite the fact that SpaceX vehicles are now being used for travel to and from the ISS, NASA confirmed on Monday, March 14th, that plans continue to go forward for the three men to return to the Earth together. We are in communication with our Russian colleagues. There's no fuzz on that. Joel Montalbano, NASA's International Space Station Program Manager, said he admitted the astronauts were aware of what's going on in the world, but they still work as a team. Under international space law, astronauts from all nations must provide all possible help to other astronauts when needed, including emergency landing in a foreign country or at sea. All ISS activities have continued for 20 years, and nothing has changed in the last three weeks. Our control centers operate successfully, flawlessly, seamlessly, he said. The United States controls power and life support aboard the station, and Russia controls things such as its propulsion. Earlier this month on Russian state television, Mr. Rogozin announced Roscosmos would halt rocket sales to the U.S. in response to sanctions against Russia. Mr. Vandehei, 55, now holds a new United States record for the most time spent in space. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. BBC News reports that Russian cosmonauts have arrived at the International Space Station wearing Ukrainian colors in what may be a statement opposing the invasion. The three men were the first new arrivals since Russia attacked its eastern neighbor last month. They were warmly welcomed on board, hugging and greeting their fellow American, Russian, and German crew members. The first arrivals since Russia's war began were shown wearing bright yellow suits with blue trimmings. They were welcomed warmly on board. Yellow is sometimes just yellow, said the Roscosmos News Agency. The ISS is a joint project between Russia, America, Canada, Japan, and several European countries. It's led by a U.S. and Russian partnership, which has been continued for two decades despite fluctuating tensions. Russian cosmonauts Denis Matyevyev, Oleg Artemyev, and Sergei Korzakov docked at the ISS after a three-hour flight, blasted off from a Russian-owned facility in Kazakhstan. Congratulations on the successful docking, a voice from Russia's mission control said moments later. A few hours later, two sets of hatches were opened and the three smiling men floated into the space station, one by one, wearing bright yellow spacesuits with blue accents. The standard-issue Russian uniform is plain blue, and at least one of the men was seen wearing this before takeoff. Became our turn to pick a color, Mr. Artemyev said when he was asked about the suits in a live stream press conference. We had accumulated a lot of yellow material, so we needed to use it up, he joked. That's why we all had to wear yellow. 
Since the invasion of Ukraine, people around the world have used the colors of its national flag to show solidarity and support. But Roscosmo's press service dismissed the reports as a funny invention by foreign bloggers and the media. The flight suits of the new crew were made in the colors of the emblem of the Bauman Moscow State Technical University, all of which three cosmonauts graduated from. To see the Ukrainian flag everywhere and in everything is crazy. The head of the Roscomos, Dmitry Rogozin, is a strong supporter of the invasion, and he suggested that the claims that the cosmonauts were wearing Ukrainian colors had come from Ukrainian nationalists. The moment was live-streamed by both NASA, the American Space Agency, and the Russian agency Roscomos. Shortwave radio is making a comeback during the Ukraine invasion. The New York Times carries an interesting article about shortwave radio which reads, As Russia is trying to cut off the flow of information in Ukraine by attacking its communications infrastructure, British news outlet BBC is revisiting a broadcasting tactic popularized during World War II, shortwave radio. With most external news agencies thrown out of Russia and their websites blocked, international broadcasters are launching new shortwave services to get the news through. Shortwave radio has been a go-to vehicle to reach listeners in conflict zones for decades, used to deliver crackling dispatches to soldiers in the Persian Gulf War, send codes to spies in North Korea, and pontificate through the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. But more modern forms of radio, along with internet, eventually push shortwave out of favor. The BBC retired its shortwave transmissions in Europe 14 years ago. As an example, take a listen on 4625 kilohertz. This has for many years been the location on the dial for the buzzer, a Russian military transmitter whose nickname describes its monotonous on-off buzzing transmission perfectly. As the current Ukrainian situation has taken shape, it has become a minor battleground, and the buzzer now shares its frequency with a variety of other stations broadcasting music, spectrograms, and other radio junk intended to disrupt it. For the curious, this can be watched unfolding on a spectrogram or through headphones by anyone within range who has an HF receiver, or for everyone else with a web SDR. Over the time monitoring it, Hurt has been overlaying speech and music, varying from the Soviet and American anthems through dance music and K-pop, to 1960s British rock and of course Boney M's Rasputin, with a few slightly macabre choices such as Final Countdown and an Air Raid Siren. Even intros from The Benny Hill Show, The A-Team, and Mission Impossible. So whoever is doing this has a wide taste. Alongside the music at about 4628 kHz, Scene has been a series of spectrogram messages scrolling past in Ukrainian, Russian, and English, ranging from stop war to lewd suggestions about the Russian president. It's fair to say that none of these transmissions have obscured the buzzer, but they have had the effect of significantly increasing the noise on the channel. Writing on Hackaday.com, Jenny List said that an abiding memory for a teen fascinated by electronics and radio in the 1970s and 80s was the proliferation of propaganda stations that covered the shortwave spectrum. Some of them were slightly surreal, such as Albania's Radio Tirana, which would proudly inform 1980s Western Europe that every village in their country now possessed a telephone. But most stations were the more mainstream, ideological gladiating of The Voice of America and Radio Moscow. It's a long-gone era, as the Cold War is a distant memory, and citizens East and West now get their info from the internet. But perhaps there's an echo of those times following the invasion of Ukraine. With most external news agencies thrown out of Russia and their websites blocked, international broadcasters are launching new shortwave services to get the news through. 
owning a shortwave radio in Russia may once again become a subversive activity. There was a time when everyone had a radio, and radio listening was a universal occupation. From the 1930s, families clustered round an ornate family radio, the teenagers of the 1960s and 70s using their portables, it's a defining 20th century image. Though many of us still listen to radio here in 2022, the chances are that we no longer do so over AM, and certainly not over shortwave. We can get instant access to almost any content available online, so it's by no means certain people will even have a radio. If those shortwave transmissions are starting again, how can their intended audience pick them up? Perhaps it's time to look at shortwave radios with a 2022 slant. If you lack a shortwave radio and a dig around your family's junk hasn't turned up a relic from decades past, then the simplest way to get one is, of course, to buy one. But there's a problem. International events are moving really fast and there might not be the luxury of waiting three weeks for delivery or even, for that matter, of being able to order one at all if you're located in a war zone. How can you make one? Yet again, there's an extremely simple option in the Silicon Labs series of one-chip radios. These provide a high-performance shortwave receiver with a minimum of external parts and really are a miracle of integration. But yet again, in a war zone and in the middle of a chip shortage, they just might not be an option. So how could you make a shortwave radio receiver using what parts you might have at hand from available consumer electronics? The best way to start is to look at the things you might already have, such electronic flotsam and jetsam as battery-powered AM radios, car radios, or even $10 RTL-SDR sticks. All of these can be modified or converted to receive the shortwave broadcast bands, often with readily available parts. Probably the simplest method possible might be to directly modify an existing AM radio. Jenny credits Phil, Mike 6 India Papa X-Ray at indestructibles.com, who describes a method to do this. It involves changing the resonant frequency of the ferrite rod antenna coil in the radio and relying on a harmonic of the local oscillator rather than the fundamental to do the mixing. It doesn't necessarily cover all the broadcast bands, but it might do at a pinch. And if you want to resolve single sideband on an AM-only radio, get a second AM radio and locate it close to the first. Try tuning the second radio, and often the oscillator it contains will act as a beat frequency oscillator, which will allow single sideband signals in the main receiver to be resolved. Read the full article, which has many suggestions and is full of photos, at hackaday.com. With the recent relaxation of COVID-19 regulations, the Deutscher Amateur Radio Club and Mass Friedrichshafen, partners of Ham Radio 2022 exhibition in Germany, are optimistically looking forward toward holding the 45th Ham Radio Fest from June 24th through the 26th in Friedrichshafen, subject to the final official approval by the local authorities. Appropriate hygienic and distancing measures will be in place for the safety of all visitors. This will have implications on the design of the stands, the opening ceremony, the presentation rooms, and the flea market area. One of the largest amateur radio conventions in the world, alongside Dayton Hamvention in the U.S. and the Japan Amateur Radio League Ham Fair, the Ham Radio Fest attracts exhibitors and visitors from more than 52 countries to Germany. 
ARRL, the National Association of Amateur Radio, will be among the participating international amateur radio union member societies exhibiting at the convention. Ham Radio Fest organizers say they are looking forward to seeing you and Friedrich Schiffen. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. I'm the tech guy. I'm in my lab coat with my Bunsen burners, my protective eyewear, my face mask. And here I am, sheltering in place in my lab. Tech guy labs. We don't know why they're plural. Could be just tech guy lab. Why are there two of them? I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> but that's what it is. Maybe it's my doppelganger in the other lab. That's probably what it is. Uh, I, you know, on uh, I think it was Thursday, watching a little TV as one does. Nothing much to do late at night, except look at the moon or look at the screen glowing in your living room. So I was doing the latter. And then my phone went, <laughs> stopped working, rebooted. So the little white apple on the screen. I said, what the what the heck? It was the second time that day it had happened. Now I know why. Now I know why. Oh, some wag sent me a text message which crashed my phone. Yes, it's happening again. This is not the first time. Uh, it, it, it's the same software that's causing the problem. It's what we call a rendering engine. Boom, boom. It's the thing that draws the pictures and the text on the screen. And uh, it is what we call an interpreter. It gets information, interprets it, and puts it on the screen. The problem with interpreters is if you're not careful, they can be sent something that they go bonkers with. And uh, as every good hacker knows, yes, I know you know this because you're a good hacker, every good hacker knows that if you can get a computer to go bonkers, <laughs> you're uh, one step closer to getting it to take over it to getting in its guts and saying, I can do what I will with my, this little machine. Crashes are usually a prelude to a hack. As soon as they figure out how to crash it, they go, okay. Okay, we were able to jump to memory somewhere we shouldn't have. That's good, because that's what's happening. Now, if we could just put something evil at that spot, now we're talking. So if you uh, you won't see it because it'll crash. This is the really sad thing is it'll crash it without you even opening the messages program or looking at it. It also works in other uh, messengers like Telegram, Facebook Messenger, and it works on the iPhone, the iPad, the Macintosh, and the Apple Watch. It's everywhere. Uh, it's a it's a string of characters, Cindy characters, and the Italian flag emoji. The Cindy language. You don't have to understand the Cindy language to be able to use it. You just need to paste it in. It's being spread around. Cindy is a, one of the many languages in uh, in India. And um, the issue is apparently fixed in the next version of iOS 13.4.5, which is in testing right now. Not available to others. 
So expect maybe even today, and it would be worth it if you. It's just a little information, you know. My wife said, "Oh, you should take it in." I, I said, "Oh, I guess there's something wrong with my phone." But then I found out, no, it's something not wrong with my phone. It's doing what it's supposed to do. This is one of a number of bugs. All of a sudden, what they call zero day flaws because they're already in the wild before anybody even knew about them it's uh as vice says the rarest fish in the cybersecurity ocean which is really stretching a, a metaphor a little a little too too far i think <laughs> it takes advantage of vulnerabilities yes of course in apple's normally secure operating system it's covered by a company in san francisco called zecops they all have funny names announced on Wednesday that one of its that a few of its customers were targeted with two different zero day exploits for iOS last year. Apple will also patch these, we presume. Zero days are bad because it means there's no fix and it's already being used. Typically, they're discovered and used by nation states, spy organizations. <clears throat> and they're usually targeted against diplomats spies, political figures, that kind of thing. VIPs. Sometimes it's industrial espionage. They, they target executives of big companies. In fact, that's what ZecOps does. Is they secure executives. Get it? ZecOps. They secure executives from big companies. And uh, I guess two of, their, uh, two of their guys got hacked. It's a remote zero click if you really want to get specific. That means you don't have to do anything. It can they could just just like this I bet it's related to this uh, message hack where somebody you don't even have to open messages. Your phone will just crash if somebody sends you the text. I bet you really I bet they're related. So uh, as always, uh, look for patches. You know, there's vulnerabilities in all operating systems, some more than others. Apple makes a lot of money because people like me say it's safer it's more secure and it's true there are fewer of these but it's probably important to understand nothing is perfect and anything that is attacked with sufficient resources and vigor the kinds of resources and vigor that a nation state might have you know the cia or the nsa or the saudis or the israelis or well there are many many nation states that are have their own hackers, and then they pay you lots of money, millions of dollars sometimes for these little zero days. And then they keep them. You know, what is what is normally done by the security community is what we call responsible disclosure. A security guy finds a flaw and goes, ooh, yikes, and then contacts the company and says, you got 90 days to fix this. The clock is ticking. 90 days is the typical amount, three months. Usually considered enough for a company to figure out what the problem is. And, and send out a patch. The reason they don't just say, hey, fix it and, and walk away is because if they found it, somebody else could find it. And you don't want companies to take too long to fix flaws like this. You want them to get right on it. So you give them a deadline because, you know, we're human. We work better with a deadline. So the, the clock is ticking for a zero day because there's it's revealed. It's too late. It's out there. <clears throat> you don't have 90 days. You got no time at all. And Apple's pretty good about this. And I imagine there's some number of engineers working as fast as they can to figure out what it is and how they can fix it. And there's a good reason to, because the bad guys are out in force right now. They are loving this quarantine thing. Ransomware attacks, in fact, now are bigger than credit card theft. One in five malware or hacking incidents 
according to research by a cybersecurity company Trustwave, one in five involves a ransomware attack. And that was in 2019. I think it's on the upswing. That's a 400% increase over 2018. It means that ransomware attacks are more common than credit card and financial data breaches for the first time ever. But I guess that's not really a surprise to anybody, is it? Nope. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Backlogged, paralyzed, swamped, and overwhelmed. These are the words that describe the FCC in January 1977. The reason? Citizens banned radio applications. The CB craze had started in 1974 with the first gas crisis. Fueled by top 10 songs, TV shows, and movies, CB radio became an incredibly popular fad among the public in the days before computers, the internet, cable TV, or cellular phones. Prior to the gas crisis, the licensed CB population had stabilized at about 800,000. Now, over 500,000 applications per month poured into the FCC Gettysburg office. The peak was reached in January when 1 million applications came in. By the end of 1977, over 10 million CB licenses had been issued. The explosive growth in 11-meter activity, coupled with the unresolved Class E CB issue, caused increased friction between CBers and hams. The ARRL was still fighting the proposed reallocation of 2 MHz in our 220 band to Class E. Instead, the League suggested a new CB band at 900 MHz. Then, on April 4, 1977, the Class E fight was thrust into the public spotlight. Jack Anderson, in his nationally syndicated column, charged that the FCC was staffed by Ham Henchmen, who conspired with the 300,000 amateurs to keep 9 million CBers from getting expanded frequencies. The ARRL, along with dozens of hams, sent rebuttals to the media. The friction gradually subsided when the FCC announced the 27 MHz CB band would be expanded from 23 to 40 channels. The Class E question was settled on October 13, 1977, when the FCC dropped the idea. Our 220 band was safe for now. Ironically, the United States lost $200 million on the CB boom. How? Well, Late in 1976, a federal court overturned the FCC's license fee structure. Rather than appeal the decision and or overhaul their fee assessment procedure, 
the FCC suspended collection of all license fees effective January 1st, 1977. A Class D CB license costs $20. You can do the math. Incidentally, amateurs benefited from the license fee suspension. A new or renewed license, except for the novice, used to cost $9. Now it was free. Amateur radio was growing in 1977. At the beginning of the year, there were 293,655 hams. By mid-year, the number was 313,000, and on December 1st, it was 327,000. This was a healthy 11% growth in one year and a 25% increase over the 1974 census. The biggest single reason was probably 2-meter FM. Hundreds of repeaters with the distinctive WR prefix covered the country coast to coast. The pages of QST were filled with ads for crystal control 2-meter FM rigs such as the Midland 13500 and 13505, the Wilson 1402 and 1405, the Regency HR2B and HR312, the Geneve GTX1 and GTX10, and the Heathkit HW202. With crystals for 12-channel operation, these units cost about $250. Counting inflation, that's about $700 today. For the 1977 operator who wanted the latest in synthesized technology, Clegg had the FMDX for $599, or $1,500 today, and Heathkit introduced the HW2036, which covered the 146 through 148 MHz FM segment of the 2-meter band. For those on a tight budget, VHF Engineering had a 1-watt 2-meter transmitter kit for $29.95, a 2-meter receiver kit for $69.95, and a 2-watt, 4-channel, 2-meter HT kit for $129.95. Technicians now had novice privileges but were still banned from 50.0 to 50.1 and 144 through 145 MHz. However, the 2-meter repeater segment at 146 through 148 MHz was becoming crowded. In response to several petitions, on November 4, 1977, the FCC opened a new repeater subband from 144.5 through 145.5 MHz. In addition, they deleted the separate station license requirement for repeaters. Any amateur, except for novice, could now put up a repeater without prior FCC approval. Logging requirements for repeaters were simplified. Finally, Technicians were given full access to the new repeater subband, although the 144.0 through 144.5 segment was still out of bounds for technicians. In other FCC news for 1977, on March 1st, instant upgrading appeared. Licensed amateurs could immediately use new privileges upon passing the test for a higher class license rather than waiting six to eight weeks for the overloaded FCC to send the new license. On July 1st, any extra-class amateur could apply for a 1 by 2 call. Due to a 500% increase in amateur exams, as well as a massive workload, the FCC announced on August 18th that the CW sending test would be eliminated for all licenses above novice. However, the FCC had only one proposal that brought forth the wrath of the amateur community. Citing illegal CB operation on the 10.5-meter band, 
In other words, those frequencies between 27.405 and 28 MHz. The FCC wanted to ban commercial amplifiers capable of operation between 24 and 35 MHz and to require type acceptance on any amplifier that operated below 144 MHz. Except for novice VXOs in the early 1970s, the FCC had never required type acceptance on any amateur transmitter. The amateur community strongly opposed this proposal. Hams were being punished for the crimes of others. The FCC promised an answer by 1978. In summary, 1977 was a good year for amateurs, but there were still some unfinished business. Would technicians get the full 2-meter band and, along with generals, regain the 50.0 through 50.1 megahertz segment they lost under incentive licensing? Would CB radio continue its massive growth and make more demands on amateur frequencies? Finally, would the FCC ban 10-meter amplifiers? The answers lie in 1978. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. Every year on April the 18th, it's World Amateur Radio Day, when radio amateurs worldwide take to the airwaves in celebration of amateur radio and to commemorate the formation of the International Amateur Radio Union in 1925. The President of Radio Amateurs of Canada, Phil McBride, Victor Alpha 3, Quebec Romeo, reports that once again the RAC will be holding a Get on the Air on World Amateur Radio Day special event, in which they encourage as many amateurs as possible to get on the air and contact as many RAC stations as possible. RAC official stations will operate across Canada from 0000 UTC to 2359 UTC on April the 18th. The official station call signs all have Romeo Alpha Charlie as the suffix, and amongst the prefixes are Victor Alpha 2, Victor Alpha 3, Victor Echo 1, Victor Echo 4, Victor Echo 5, Victor Echo 6, Victor Echo 7, Victor Echo 8, Victor Echo 9, Victor Oscar 1, Victor Oscar 2. Victor Yankee 0, Victor Yankee 1, and Victor Yankee 2, Romeo Alpha Charlie. Those contacting one or more of these stations will be eligible for a special commemorative certificate, noting their participation in the RAC's event. Participants simply need to complete one or more contacts on any band and mode with RAC official stations to earn their certificates. No logs need to be submitted. Simply check back on the RAC website when instructed and enter your call sign to download your certificate. For more information on World Amateur Radio Day and the RAC's Get on the Air on World Amateur Radio Day special event, please visit www.rac.ca. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. The International Amateur Radio Union Satellite Frequency Coordination Panel reports that an application has been submitted for an amateur radio payload to be hosted on the brand new Chinese space station. In case you didn't know, the new Chinese space station has been in orbit for the last year. It is still under construction and is currently occupied by three astronauts. China's Tiangong space station, 
which is being constructed in low Earth orbit following the launch of its first module last May, is expected to have expanded room for astronauts, experiments, and now amateur radio. The International Amateur Radio Union's Satellite Frequency Coordination Panel reports that it received an application on March 8th for an amateur radio payload to be on board. The station is being proposed by the Chinese Radio Amateurs Club in cooperation with the Aerospace System Engineering Research Institute of Shanghai and the Harbin Institute of Technology. Previous news reports have noted that the Chinese Manned Space Agency plans to have three astronauts on board continuously for a minimum of 10 years. One module will house the astronauts. The space station expects to use the remaining two of its three modules to host scientific experiments of researchers from all nations of the UN. The amateur radio station is applying to use portions of the VHF and UHF amateur radio band and will consist of communications by voice, repeater, AFSK digipeter, slow scan television, and other digital imaging modes. Not unlike the radios on board the International Space Station, the ham radios on the Chinese Space Station are intended for a variety of uses, including contact with students to inspire careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. According to the application, the payload would launch in the third quarter of this year. The High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program or HAARP facility in Alaska, will be supporting the NASA Sounding Rockets Program Office for the Ion Neutral during active Aurora mission by providing an additional non-co-located ground-based sensor. HAARP will concurrently be conducting an HF ocean scatter experiment. Actual transmitting days and times are highly variable based on real-time ionospheric conditions and the Poker Flat Research Range launch window. The following schedule is subject to change, and all transmissions will take place on the 6.8 MHz band. Australia's national broadband network, the NBN, has produced a document that suggests that radio amateurs cause interference to VDSL2, whereas, of course, in reality, it is VDSL2 and the RF pollution it can produce that is the problem. The introduction to their document says that it is intended for technically-minded users or those providing technical support to customers connected to the Australia's national broadband network who are experiencing signal interference between their service and amateur radio transmissions. It's assumed that the people referencing the document will have a reasonable understanding of electronics, wireless transmission and broadband transmission technology, including digital subscriber line, that's DSL, and very high-speed DSL, that's VDSL. With that in mind, the document would be suitable for licensed cablers, telecommunications, network technicians, operational support staff, network engineers and amateur radio operators. The full document, called Mitigating Amateur Radio Interference to VDSL2, can be downloaded from www.nbnco.com.au. For radio amateurs, this is likely to be an annoying, if not inflammatory, document. It suggests that radio hams are causing problems to VDSL when, in general, it is exactly the other way round. Wideband HF interference from VDSL is driving many radio hams off the air.
And while radio amateurs have licenses allowing them to radiate radio frequencies, VDSL should be contained within the cables that deliver it. Perhaps the amateur radio societies in Australia will make a robust response. On March 2nd, 2022, Michael Kuhn, DB6NT, and his son, Matthias, DK5NJ, established a new world distance record at 134 GHz by making contact using CW over 157 kilometers, or 98 miles, between the summits of two mountains in Germany. The portable microwave stations were located on Schneekopf Mountain in the Thuringian Forest and atop Feidelberg Mountain near Aberwiesenthal. You could check out the video of the record-breaking contact on YouTube. The latest edition of the Eclectic Tech Podcast features a conversation with Steve Allen, KC1SA, about circuit simulation software. He explains. When you simulate something on a computer, you're going to save um, soldering time, if you want to call it that, or breadboarding or brassboarding, however you want to call it, a circuit up and swapping out components to see what works and what doesn't. You can do it on your computer much faster, and you'll get pretty good results. The Eclectic Tech Podcast is available on the Blueberry site. An amateur radio club on the border of New South Wales and Victoria and Australia has come to the rescue of a dozen or so clubs that, like their own, works to assist communities ravaged by such disasters as bushfires, earthquakes, and floods. In this case, however, the Northeast Victoria Amateur Radio Club has stepped in because the other clubs became victims themselves after recent floods destroyed their vital radio gear and, in many cases, washed it away. The club has been providing assistance by collecting funds as well as new radio gear. Frank Scott, VK2BFC, secretary of the club, told ABC.net News that a fund has been created to replace as much of the other club's lost gear as possible. He said many of the clubs belong to the Wireless Institute of Australia's Civil Emergency Network. According to Scott, most of the equipment that was lost was not covered by flood damage insurance. He went on to say that it was difficult to get that kind of insurance for such items as ham radio equipment and a communication tower. AMSAT has received a generous grant from Amateur Radio Digital Communications for the development of a 3U space frame with deployable solar panels. This standardized 3U CubeSat space frame will serve as the mechanical platform for AMSAT's greater orbit, larger footprint, or golf series of satellites, as well as for a new generation of low-Earth orbit LEO-FM satellites. Central to the development of the 3U space frame, AMSAT will build three flight-ready space frames for an upcoming series of satellites with potentially enhanced flight control, payload, and communication capabilities. The need for a 3U space frame with deployable solar panels goes back to the original design requirements for the Gulf satellites that would return AMSAT to highly elliptical orbits. The benefit of this program will provide satellites with wider coverage and longer access times to the entire amateur radio satellite community worldwide. An exercise in emergency preparedness brought hams in one region of India to a remote island on the river Ganga near Patna, the capital city of Bihar. It was a two-day field exercise on March 12th and 13th for members of the Society of Radio Amateurs, relying only on battery power for more than 30 hours. They were joined by operators from the Indian Wave of Amateur Radio, VU2IWA, based in Calcutta, who, like the hams from Bihar, know that preparedness is essential in a region like theirs, which is prone to earthquakes and floods. Radio conditions that weekend were conducive to good contacts. According to a report on the Global Bihari news site, hundreds of QSOs were made between that remote island and radio operators as far away as Europe. 
The Hams are pleased with the results since many of them provide essential communication during the region's natural disasters. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a podcast at our website, www.twiar.net, and streamed worldwide via Spotify and iHeartMedia. And now, with this week's propagation forecast report, we go back to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who reports from League Headquarters. Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, Washington, reports solar and geomagnetic activity were much quieter over the reporting week of March 17th to the 23rd. Average daily sunspot numbers declined by more than half from 74.6 to 33.4, and average daily solar flux from 119 to 99.9. Predicted solar flux is 105 on March 24th to the 25th, 110 on March 26th to the 30th, 115 on March 31st, and 120 on April 1st. Sunspot numbers for March 17th through the 23rd were 53, 27, 29, 39, 30, 29, and 27 with a mean of 33.4. Looking a little further into the propagation forecast, solar activity went through a quasi-periodic 27-day low around March 20th. Then it started to rise slightly. Sunspots are now observed only in the eastern half of the solar disk. In addition, the Solar Observation Mission Stereo A observes further activity beyond the eastern limb of the solar disk. Therefore, the solar activity will increase until the end of the month. Shortwave propagation conditions were above average until March 21st. Then the subsequent decrease in solar activity, together with a slight increase in geomagnetic activity, caused their slight deterioration. We will see improvements in the coming days, however. This development will end in a recurrent disturbance around April 1st. The expected storm could, at best, begin with a positive phase of development with further improvement and growth of the MUF. Time now for the AMSAT report. Almost every day, some satellite enthusiast is out there roving and providing some of those much-needed grid squares, as does ARRL. AMSAT has an award for working all 488 continental U.S. grids, but via satellite only. It's not as easy as it sounds. There are a few tough ones out there, like EL-84 or CM-79. When hunting for grids, you can't just take a radio and antenna out there and try to work them that way. You have to plan for the satellites you want to use, then hope that both a rover and the station needing the rover's grid are in the satellite's footprint. The hunt is daunting, the reward satisfying. Another AMSAT award that's a bit difficult is the Reverse VUCC Award. The Reverse VUCC Award is for working from 100 different grids other than your home grid. Details on these awards, their requirements, and much more fascinating information is at www.amsat.org. The AMSAT report comes to us courtesy of Bruce Page, KK5DO. Foundations of Amateur Radio The art of amateur radio is many things to many people. For me, it's a technological challenge. 
a learning, a way to broaden my experience, a way to be technically active away from my consultancy. The place that amateur radio takes in your life might be the same, or it might be completely different, as varied as the people I've encountered since I became an amateur. People from all walks of life with different experiences and vastly different stories. Truth be told, in the decade that I've been an amateur, I've spoken to and met people from more diverse backgrounds than in the 40 years before that. I make that statement as a person who migrated across the globe twice, travelled through a dozen or so countries, stood on stage in front of thousands of people, taught countless classes, and as a radio broadcaster interviewed people from all over the planet. From paraplegic to quadriplegics, from people with terminal diseases to people struggling with their identity, from astronomers to astrologers, from train drivers to truck drivers, from mariners to motorcyclists, from working to retired, from healthy to hospitalised, from local to remote, from energetic to sedentary, from happy to sad, from connected to isolated, and everything in between. As a host of a weekly net for new and returning amateurs, I've begun to notice that some people are falling away either sitting on the side because they feel they have nothing to contribute, or stopping communication altogether. It occurred to me that for some people, amateur radio is the only way that they connect to the world around them. It's the only way for them to meet people who are different, who walk a different path, who tell a different story. It's also sometimes the only thing that makes them get out of bed. In a world where we're all busy dealing with the realities of daily life, trying hard to figure out what our place is in that experience and trying hard not to lose your identity while you're attempting this, it's easy to overlook the amateur you didn't hear from for a week. Or a month. I know that for several of my new friends, amateur radio kept them alive for longer and made them smile more often and made their life a little easier, even if several of them have become a silent key since I counted them as my friend. When one of the main activities of our hobby is communication, it seems appropriate to take a moment to consider what that looks like from the other person's perspective. What might it be like to be acknowledged, to be validated as a human, to see them and their life, to speak with them, even if only briefly, and to take a moment out of our own busy existence and answer that CQ, or respond to a question, or smile with a fellow amateur. There is another aspect to this, one which I've not actually seen in the amateur community. Perhaps I've been too busy to notice, but it appears that the venerable telephone circle, the idea that one person calls the next person on the list, who then calls the next, and so on, if the last person doesn't get a call within a set time, they call the list backwards, and discover who is not answering their phone. It's an effective way for people to regularly talk to each other, and it's an excellent way to make sure that everyone is okay. In our own community of amateurs, we can do the very same thing. Hosting a net is one way, having a daily commuter chat is another. But when you do this, take a moment to consider who didn't check in and see what they're up to. It's fascinating to me that we're a hobby that's primarily made of old men, yet we haven't actually embraced our own ageing process as part of the experience. Sure, there is a need to encourage new people into the hobby, but that's not the entire story. We should be so lucky as to speak with our friends on a regular basis, to check in with each other, and to make sure that we're all getting our daily dose of RF. So ask yourself how the community around you is doing and how you might take a moment to check in with those not so near, but just as dear, to you. I'm Ono, 
Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. Jeffrey, Echo India 7, India Romeo Bravo, informs us that the Fire and Safety Division of the organisation Engineers Island is presenting a talk by Dermid Moran, titled Radio Frequency Safety, Including 5G Rooftop Base Stations. Dermot is a project supervision design process specialist and a chartered engineer. He has prepared major emergency quality and project safety plans for the transport, utility and marine sectors and has 30 years experience in environment, health and safety quality management. Digital, wireless and mobile services require a range of connectivity and networking solutions. One of the key items of infrastructure is the mobile or cellular radio base station. As voice and data have evolved through GSM, 3G, 4G and now the likes of 5G, Wi-Fi and mesh networks, radio frequency power and variety has increased along with the level of infrastructure. This talk might be of interest to radio amateurs as the presentation reviews and explores the safety requirements and standards applicable to rooftop base stations and antenna structures. Examples of hazard identification and risk controls for occupational and public exposure to electromagnetic fields and radio frequency safety will also be discussed. The presentation will take place on the Zoom platform and is scheduled for Thursday the 24th of March 2022 at 7pm and it will be possible to view it retrospectively. To book a free place for the live event, please visit the website www.engineersireland.ie and navigate to event number 7969. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are... This week in Amateur Radio. And now, with his segment on how to successfully compose a public service announcement to promote your radio club meeting or ham fest on local broadcast radio, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. In the last three segments on the subject of promoting your ham radio club's event, we covered making a successful public service announcement. In this segment, we'll look into where to send your PSA once it's ready to mail. I'm always collecting addresses for local media outlets. No matter how long I've looked, I'm always finding new places to get free advertising for our local ham radio clubs. In the library, or at most radio stations' business offices, you can find a thick paperback book called The M Street Directory. This is a good reference for names, fax numbers, and addresses of radio stations in North America. Most states have a broadcaster association, and books of addresses and other contact information. Engineering firms who provide technical services to the broadcast industry also keep these books and would no doubt let you copy the pages to begin your collection of local media outlets. For your club's fundraising promotion, I would suggest posting notes in grocery stores, laundromats, schools, libraries, the nearest National Weather Service office, and neighborhood bulletin boards. Mail copies of your PSA to all local radio stations, TV stations, cable TV offices, newspapers, technical vocational schools, 
on-campus radio and TV stations, and even the local Radio Shack store. As an extra incentive, when you mail your PSA to your local radio and TV stations, include several complimentary admission tickets for the station to use as they see fit with no strings attached. This both allows them to give them away to listeners or offer them to station staff who may also someday become hams and join your ham radio club. If your local radio station is truly active in the community, you can invite them to broadcast live from your event if they want to. They can do this with minimal cost and equipment, sometimes requiring nothing more than a cell phone and a station logo on a banner. So always be looking for new ways to promote your club's fundraiser. In my opinion, in today's computer-automated world, the more you automate, the more you mail, the more you collect addresses, the easier and faster you can promote next year's event. Over a period of years, with good record-keeping, you can turn promotion to a matter of updating last year's PSA, which is still stored in your computer, with the correct date, printing new flyers and PSAs, new address labels, and within 30 minutes, the entire effort can often be a few keystrokes and mouse clicks away from completion. This is Greg Stoddard reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. As amateurs here in the United States approach the season for thunderstorms, tornadoes, and hurricanes, the National Weather Service is holding severe weather preparedness weeks across the country. Tornado drills, announcements through the media, and personal preparation information are just a few ways the Weather Service is getting the word out at this time of year to be prepared. It's a good time for amateur radio operators involved in Aries, Racies, CERT, Skywarn, and other groups to ensure that we're also prepared. This includes making sure that all radios, accessories, along with backup power sources are fully functional and that all contact information is up to date with the agencies and organizations served. Christopher Strong, Warning Coordination Meteorologist for the Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Weather Forecast Office, said that hams can play a big part in being weather aware by knowing what threats are possible. Hams should have a plan if extreme weather occurs. Strong said that during an event, operators are important as they actively gather impact data from their community and get the information back to the National Weather Service, which improves the accuracy of the notifications being issued. Over the years, the motto, when all else fails, amateur radio has proven true in many situations. This is not only due to amateur radio operators' readiness to serve, but our willingness to be prepared. For information, go to weather.gov and click on Spring Preparedness. Tony, Echo India 5 Echo Mike, has informed the Irish Radio Transmitters Society that contrary to information erroneously stated on a recent radio programme, ye old hurdy-gurdy museum of vintage radio is not closing down and in fact will be reopening at weekends starting in April. It's located at the Martello Tower in Howth, Ireland. It was also erroneously stated that the contents of the museum were being auctioned off. While the private collection of the late Pat Herbert was auctioned recently, nothing from the display in the museum was affected, as this separate collection is Pat's legacy for generations to come. The Health Martello Radio Group will be taking part in International Marconi Day on the 23rd of April using the callsign Echo India Zero Mike Alpha Romeo and visitors are very welcome to come along and operate the club station.
In preparation for International Marconi Day, Tony, Echo India 5, Echo Mike, and Joe, Echo India 2, Juliet Zulu, installed a new HF-X80 antenna on the roof of the Martello Tower in Houth. This was purchased with the help of a grant from the IRTS Promote Amateur Radio Fund. Antennas at this exposed location suffer from extreme weather conditions and need to be replaced every few years. The museum will never be the same again without Pat, but his fellow radio amateurs will keep it going in his honour, and they know that his spirit will always be present within the Martello Tower, along with that of Lee DeForest, who demonstrated his wireless telegraphy system there in 1903. Space enthusiasts are celebrating the launch of Oregon's first satellite, which carried amateur radio into low Earth orbit in a spacecraft no larger than a box of tissues. Known as Sat Zero, it's an open-source CubeSat built by the Portland State Aerospace Society, an interdisciplinary group of students at Portland State University. With solar panels, batteries, a color camera, and of course an amateur radio on board, it was launched on March 15th from Kodiak, Alaska. The group's faculty advisor, Andrew Greenberg, KD7CJT, said on the university website, our small group of space hipsters gathered in the rocket room to watch the launch with fancy bagels and pour-over water, and then collectively held our breath for more than an hour. After some nervous moments, they learned the flight had gone smoothly. Its mission, which is to test the CubeSat system itself, is expected to last several years. Fear not, this won't be the first or last for Oregon. The group is already hard at work on Orsat 0.5. It's scheduled for launch this summer. It will be a larger satellite for NASA's CubeSat launch initiative and will carry equipment gathering data for global climate science, studying the distribution of high-altitude cirrus clouds. The Institution of Engineering and Technology, the IET, has published an article about Eric Magor, original callsign Six Mike Uniform, a radio amateur in Belfast in the 1920s. Eric's radio achievements featured in the newspapers of the time. When aged only 15, he hit the headlines in the local press under the title of Belfast Island, Boy Spans Ocean, dated December 12, 1923. In October 1924, the Belfast Telegraph carried the story, Belfast Boy Receives 12,000 Miles Signal. And on August 15th, 1925, the Irish Telegraph published a picture of Eric and his amateur radio station. And in 1926, under the title, Belfast Talks to India, Amateur's Fine Performance, it reported that a Belfast radio amateur, Eric McGaw, who has for some time been experimenting with low-power telephony on shortwaves, established telephony communication with Mr H. Beck, callsign Radio YHBK, at Kohat, India. Mr. Beck, who was using Morse code signals, reported that the speech was quite okay, fairly strong, with no distortion. This is understood to be the first time words spoken in Ireland have been heard in India, and as Mr. McGaw was using an input of only 30 watts, about half the power used by an ordinary electric light, and a single 20-watt mullard transmitting valve, the transmission is probably a record for low-power and simple apparatus. In the 1930s, Eric worked at the General Electric Company Research Laboratories at Wembley, where he was involved in the development of high-power magnetrons. The full IET article can be read at ietarchivesblog.org. 
In the 1920s, the prefixes used by amateur stations in the British Isles were GI, Gulf India, for Northern Ireland, GW, Gulf Whiskey, for the Irish Free State, Gulf Charlie, for Scotland, and then Gulf was used for both England and Wales, and possibly the Crown Dependencies too. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. Available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. The Bavarian Contest Club has temporarily ceased its plaque sponsorship for the upcoming CQ Worldwide SSB and CW contests. This includes four plaques for the rookie and youth category overlays. The club said it will evaluate its sponsorship of other plaques for the CQ WWDX and CQ DX contests. The Ukraine Contest Club said it supports the decision to limit participation by Russian hams in the upcoming contests, and it will sponsor the four rookie and youth plaques, despite members' heavy losses in the war. The European Conference of Postal and Telecommunications Administrations, SEPT, has suspended the Russian Federation and Belarus from SEPT membership. It was requested by SEPT members. The suspension, which took effect March 18th, is indefinite. In the SEPT assembly, there were 34 supportive responses to the proposal and one abstention. Future readmission will require a two-thirds majority vote. Norway has plans to introduce a 10-watt entry-level certificate for young hams. It has the financial support of 1 million kroner, or nearly 114,000 U.S. dollars, from the Norwegian Research Council, with the input of hams throughout the nation. The proposal, introduced last year, was discussed at Norway's ham meeting, an annual amateur radio convention. Attendees included the communications regulator, NKOM, and the Norwegian Radio Relay League. The NRRL, the Research Institute of Forsvaret and Torbjorn LA4ZCA, are working together on a plan to introduce the subject formally into school curricula. The proposed certificate would become available to 12- and 13-year-old enthusiasts operating at low-power unlimited bands. The entry-level license has the support of such groups as the Academic Radio Club, or ARK, which has already been making classes available. The ARK is Norway's oldest amateur radio club for students. And finally this week, the Amateur Radio Service Club of Paintsville, Kentucky, will be operating a special event station from the birthplace of American country music star Loretta Lynn in Butcher Hollow in Van Leer, Kentucky. The Hams are commemorating her 90th birthday. During her musical career, Loretta Lynn received numerous awards, including three Grammys, seven American Music Awards, eight Broadcast Music Incorporated Awards, 13 Academy of Country Music, eight Country Music Association, and 26 fan-voted Music City News Awards. The club will be using the call sign K4L, which stands for Kentuckians for Loretta. 
The special event station will be operating from 0 through 2359 hours UTC on April 14th, 2022 on all HF bands and on repeaters on the East Kentucky repeater system. They will also be operating some of the digital modes as well as CW. For a specially designed QSL card confirming your contact, send your QSL and self-addressed stamped envelope to KY4ARC. Again, Kilo Yankee 4 Alpha Romeo Charlie. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on the internet, on low-power FM stations, and on great repeater systems like the WB3GXW repeater on 147.225 MHz in Silver Springs, Maryland, serving all of Silver Springs and also covering the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. WB3GXW can also be found on Echolink Conference Server Node 6154. If you are a This Week in Amateur Radio affiliate and you would like us to give a free on-air announcement of your station's carriage of the program, please send us an email with the station location, call sign, coverage area, and day and time you air This Week in Amateur Radio, plus any other information you would like us to impart. You can send to the following email, w2xbs77 at gmail.com. That address once again is w2xbs77. 77 at gmail.com. Many of the news and information items heard on this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the AWRL Audio News Service, and the AWRL Letter, the Southgate Amateur News Service, Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo, and the Southgate Vibes News Service, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain, and Ofcom the South African Radio League, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, and the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the New Zealand Association of Radio Transmitters, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the Rain Hamcast, Eric Guth, 4Z1UG and QSO Today, QRZ.com, the Tech Guy, Leo Laporte, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. With special thanks to all our weekly news sources and to you, our listeners, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. If you'd like to write to us, you can find everything you need, including archive editions of the news service at our website at twiar.net. And now for all of us at This Week in Amateur Radio headquarters and our news team around the world, this is Chris Perrine, KB2FAF, wishing you... 73.